0: Our guest preacher this morning needs little in way of introduction. Uh, many of you have spent years under his teaching, and those of you who uh, haven't may have heard uh, in Focal Point Radio Ministries his teaching on the radio waves across America. Uh, but some things I want you to know about our guest preacher uh, is his love for the Lord, his love for the local church, his commitment to the home and leading it in a way that honors the Lord. He has two sons and one daughter. Uh, Both of his uh, young adult sons are pastors in the local church now, and their daughter is now on her way to Bible College in Louisville, Kentucky. And so uh, the fruit of his labor is very clearly seen in in his church, in Aliso Viejo, uh, in the church plants that he has sent off, including this one right here. Uh, and all over the world because of his influence and his great commitment to the Word of God, which we say just like the song, yet not I but Christ in me. All these things that he has done because of he submitted his life to the Lord to use it however he wants. Uh, Pastor Mike is a prolific writer and speaker, has written so many great books, uh, including Raising Men, Not Boys, an opportunity for you to read that book. If you were here yesterday at the conference, you received that in your goodie bag. Uh, but if not, you could buy that at our bookstore or online. Uh, just to get a little insight in how he raised his own boys in his home but so many other things i could say about him and his wife carlin great mentors in mine and my wife's life so grateful for them and that they've taken some time to come here this weekend to invest in this church plant so with that i would love for you to give a warm welcome to dr mike fabaris
1: Even if you're not clapping, and I see those of you that aren't, just want to let you know here in Orange County, here in Orange County, there in Orange County, there are thousands of people that erupt in applause when we give reports about the good things that are happening here. They have given, they have prayed, uh, and they are rooting for you out here in the hill country of Texas. And uh, they are very excited about what God is doing here, and I just want to affirm that we believe that God's good hand is upon this church it's not about being cool or being hip or being popular it's about uh, preaching God's word about affirming that in your children's lives and your lives about trying to articulate what you need not just what you want and so i trust that you will uh, support your pastors your leaders here that you would be the kinds of people that would make their jobs a joy uh, which god gives us that little line there in hebrews 13 if you remember it that uh, has a little veiled threat within it. It'd be be good for you if you would allow your leaders to do their jobs with joy. And I trust that you will by pulling together because they're in this for the long haul. They're not just blown into town for a few years to run off to some other better opportunity. They love you guys. I know that. Uh, I hear about that all the time, their commitment and sacrifice to you. So uh, keep making their job a joy. And we are glad that you're here learning God's word from them. Let's see. I'm going to give you a little test to see how well they're teaching you God's word. Are you ready for the exam? There's a list of commandments. They're called the Ten Commandments. You ever heard of those? See, you're doing well on the exam so far. They've all heard of the Ten Commandments. There's only one of the commandments where the verb that is commanded to you is repeated more than once. Do you know which of the Ten of the Ten Commandments is repeated twice in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20? The last one. Do you know what the last commandment is in the Ten Commandments? You shall not covet your neighbor's house. As though we didn't get it the first time, and you shall not covet his wife, you can't covet his servants, you can't covet his ox, his donkey, or anything else that, that your neighbor has. Do not covet. That's a weird command if you think about it, right? That you can't, in your heart, in the privacy of your heart, right, crave after something you don't have. Just let that sink in for a second that you can't in your heart say, I wish my husband were more like that guy. I wish I had a house like he has. I wish I had a car like he does. I wish that I had a job like he does. I wish that I were as gifted as she is. I wish I was pretty as she is. You can't do that. And why would God be such a persnickety God to saddle you with that kind of command? Because he hates you, right? You're supposed to giggle at that point. Because you're so well taught, you know that can't possibly be the answer. It's because he loves you. Because here's the problem with people that covet, right, that want, desperately want, crave things that they don't have. They're very unhappy people. Right? They're people that really are struggling through life with uh, all kinds of desires that aren't met. They're unpleasant. They're critical. They're cranky. They're, they're not the kind of people you want to hang out with, and they're not the kind of people you'd want to be married to. Let me just tell you that. People that crave stuff they don't have. We're always wanting stuff we don't have. We need to learn to want the stuff we do have. That would be helpful, right? I know your wife isn't like his wife, and your stuff isn't like their stuff, and your house isn't like her house. I, I get all that. Welcome to being average, right? I mean, we're in the middle somewhere, aren't we? I like to think we're kind of on the near the top end, but we, everyone's got something better than us. They're smarter, they're faster, they're better looking, they're just everything, you're somewhere in the middle. And God says, one thing I don't want you to do is to to have this craving in your life to always have what they have. That's important. Jesus talked a lot about that in his teaching. And uh, in the 16th chapter of Luke, there are 31 verses and one verse is about marriage. And it is sandwiched in between 30 verses about stuff, about money, about wealth. If you haven't turned there already, I'd like you to turn there and look at this chapter that starts here in verse number one, where Jesus starts telling a story about a rich man. Do you see that there in verse number one? When you get there, there is rich man. Verse 18 is about marriage. And you know, he's addressing these people with a corrective You got a problem. Matter of fact, he says it there. Before he gets to verse 18, he says, you guys love money. The Pharisees love money. They want all the stuff that everyone has. And they're after it. And that's why they're making such progress, because they were pretty wealthy. But they're always craving that stuff. Well, he has one verse in verse 18 about marriage. And then in verse 19, another story about a rich man. Pastor Evan read that to you, just at least the first half of it. It's a story that goes on to verse 31. But I just want you to know that all of this talk in this chapter is about money, with one verse about marriage. Pastor Hayden asked me to talk to you about marriage here. as the last sermon in our Family Matters conference, and I hope you, many of you were a part of it. I hope you enjoyed it. It was worth uh, your $10. Uh, I thought about that when I translated with our pastors. We were sitting around talking about uh, coming. Every one of our messages was at least worth three bucks, we thought, so... <laughs> You really have a way of making us feel important. Right? <laughs> I know what you're going to say. Welcome to being average. I get, okay, I get it. Three bucks. Some people go on speaking church for thousands of dollars. Uh, Three dollars. Which, by the way, I'll let you know, and I just need you to know this because we're coming from your sending church. We, they, Pastor Hayden and all that you give, does, not a dime of that goes to us. Right? We don't get honorariums. We don't get speaking fees. Um, all that's just to pay for... I'm assuming whatever you fed them, uh, or the name tags, or the booklets, or whatever. So I don't know why I would have felt compelled to say that, probably because we were talking about coveting, and I want you to know we didn't come out here to uh, covet your, your, your wealth. But why would there be one verse about marriage surrounded by stuff? Well, I would ask the same question about Exodus chapter 20 that really it starts with don't cover your neighbor's house, don't cover his wife, don't cover his stuff. It, it, it's, a, it's a microcosm, very concentrated microcosm of chapter eight, uh, 16 of Luke, right? It's like stuff, marriage, stuff, 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 stuff. And, and we don't want to crave things we don't have, whether it's a better marriage, although we'd like your marriage to be, and frankly, I'd like your income to be better. That'd be nice. I mean, there's nothing virtuous about being poor. Right, nothing really. Right, if you can get a job, if your your kid, your adult kid says, "I got a job offer. It's paying hundred thousand dollars." I got another job offer. It's paying thirty thousand dollars. I think you know, all things else being equal, you'd probably say, "Take the one that's making six figures. That'd be better." Wouldn't you? Of course. Right? There, there's, no, there's no virtue in poverty, and yet in this passage that has just been read to you. It's the rich guy who loses in eternity and the poor guy who wins in eternity. Would you, would you agree with that part? And it's like, okay, well, that's an interesting thing. Why would he tell it? I guess I'll leave it to you to study the whole chapter to see that all this teaching about money and the people he's teaching to the love of money, as well as their wandering eyes and their concerns about having something better even in their own bedrooms. You just need to understand that, that Jesus is trying to teach something here about the reality of the heart that is not content. And I would love to at least end this weekend of our time here by trying to see if we can make a little progress in that department, whether it's your family or your kids or your wife or your house or what you have in the bank. So let's read this passage again with a little bit of commentary, starting in verse number 19, Luke chapter 16, verse 19, as we just are reminded, if you don't know, that to be clothed in purple, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple, is no small feat in the first century. I don't know if you you know your Bible well, but there's this gal named Lydia in the book of Acts. Do you remember her? She was a seller of purple garments. Well, that was a very ritzy thing to say. And and it wouldn't be any surprise to know that she's hosting the church in her home because you got a big home if you were dealing with purple garments. Because that was like the the upper echelon was hard to do. And there's all kinds of historical reasons for that. But the point is, if you're dressed in purple, you're dressed the best of the best best in in culture. And then... uh, Not that we want to talk about his underwear, but he's also dressed in fine linen, which is what you put against your body, and it was comfortable. So he had comfort, he had luxury, he had looks, he had all this stuff, except he's a little portly because it says here, he feasted sumptuously every day. I've tried that for seasons of my life. It doesn't do well for your shape, but it feels good. And in the ancient world, when you were a portly man, you had a lot of weight on you, it was at least an expression of, right, the kind of fact that you you got money, you got stuff. They don't have deep freezers. They don't have refrigerators. I mean, to do that just showed you had to, at the hand, ready, all of this stuff to jam into your mouth, and you were a rich person. So, I mean, Jesus is painting a story here that is, this guy's got everything, and yet he added his gate, which, of course, he had a gate because he has a compound of some kind in the ancient world, was laid a poor man named Lazarus. He was covered with sores. Now, by the way, people say, well, this is not a parable because Jesus gives this guy a name. Jesus never in any of his parables gave a proper name to someone. Have you heard that before? Raise your right eyebrow if you've ever heard that before. You've heard that? Hmm, I have heard that. I don't think that's determinative whether it's a parable or not. And the reason people, by the way, say that it's a parable is they want to say it's a parable because then, then that whole stuff about flames and torture after you die and then all the blessing and this bifurcation of two things and you got heaven and hell. I just don't believe all that. And a lot of churches, I'm sure, here, as well as in California, more in California probably, they don't believe in heaven and hell. So don't believe in hell. Certainly don't want to teach about hell. And they don't want to believe in that. And one thing they do with passages like this is, well, it's just a story he's telling about being generous. Well, it is a story about being generous, but Jesus isn't trying to lead us astray. And just because I'm thinking, I think this is a parable, perhaps, I don't care. It could be something that Jesus sees as the all-knowing one, and, and maybe this was someone. It wasn't the Lazarus that was the brother of Mary and Martha, just so you know. He wasn't dead yet, and I don't think he's looking to the future. About it. It, isn't, it That's not the case. Lazarus wasn't a poor man lying at the gate of a rich man. So none of that applies to the Lazarus of Mary and Martha's household in Bethany. Why would he pick this name? Well, here's one thing you need to know. Lazarus, and depending on who you read in terms of the first century Greco-Roman world, uh, a Hellenized world, you have this as either the fourth or the fifth most common name in, in the first century for uh, a Greco-Roman household. So it's a very common name, like Matt or John or Mike or whatever, common name, everybody has those kinds of names. And so it's a common name. I don't think that's why he chose it, more on why he chose this particular name in a minute. But let's just at least say we couldn't pick a more rich description of a guy, and now we got a really poor description of a guy because instead of he had a lot of sores, he had psoriasis, or he had some kind of problem, some kind of boils on his skin, but he went to the doctor and he, and he dealt with it. No he, he had no, he had no medicine and he had no food. Verse 21, he desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. I mean, he was imagining. Just look at the stuff that falls from the table of the rich man. And uh, worse than that, worse than being hungry, worse than having hunger pains, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, I know that you've got some dog owners here. Raise both eyebrows if you own a dog, right? Uh, dogs today, I mean, I, I can't fly anymore without seeing dogs in purses. Uh, and I've seen, I see them in strollers. Do they do that out here? Oh. Dogs are like, you know, they, my do- I, I see the stickers, right? Like puppy, mama, or whatever. I don't understand them. <laughs> but you love your dogs, okay? I won't tell you whether I love them or not, but I think I've already told you. You have a dog you want. Have your dogs. Love your dogs. Uh, not too much. But in the first century, do you think they loved dogs like the, like the gal pushing her little puppy in a stroller? No. It was an unclean animal, they didn't like them. They were scavengers, right? Have you ever been to like New York or Chicago and seen the rats kind of go right across the sidewalk when you're walking down the street? And I lived in Chicago for three years and I saw plenty of rats, big rats, ugly rats. Uh, and and uh, when you see a rat, you go, Ooh, I hope you do that. You don't go, oh, how sweet. Did you see him? No one does that, right? No one does that here. And when the dogs ran across, that's the same thing. They're eating. Out of the trash heaps, or it's just gross. They are, they are rats with a longer tail, right? That's what the dogs of the first century were. So when you see a guy who's sick with sores and he's laying there, and the dogs are licking his sores, you got the worst possible picture you could have. This man is poor, and he's laying at the gate of the rich man. He wants just a little morsel of what might be left over as scraps from his dinner last night. That's what he wants. That's bad. I mean, you want a a picture in contrast? I think this is the most extreme picture in contrast. That may be one reason I think this may be a parable. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. Okay, the poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. Look now here. And the rich man, verse 6, also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, lifted up his eyes and sought Abraham far off. And Lazarus at his side. How does this even work? Try and compute this concept here. He dies, but then he goes with angels to go to Abraham. And then the, the, the rich man also dies and he's buried, but then he goes somewhere and sees uh, uh, Lazarus. You do understand that you have to understand all of what the Old Testament teaches and the New Testament about death. Death is the separation of hardware from software. You are software contained and meshed in hardware. You are spirit in a body. Your body, by the way, has some firmware in it, computer people, you understand. There's some, there's some software that is hardwired into the circuit boards of your hardware, and it does affect how the hardware works. That's why your hardware is described in scripture exactly uh, as your flesh crying out, crying out to be satisfied with all kinds of things. You understand how that works. You have your body, and the Bible doesn't just call it body, which sometimes it does, the Greek word soma, but usually it uses the word sarke, which is flesh. It has desires. It's got, it, it wants to be first. It's about ego. It's about I want whatever satisfaction of my desires that, I, that any impulse of my flesh. Here's how Peter puts it, the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. I wasn't trying to kick you out if you're leaving with a baby. Oh, you're not. You're just leaving. It. It's okay. Okay. Oh. no. I might leave at this point myself, but she's going somewhere important. And I do not mean to call you out. I love you. Um, (laughs) My mother often in this, my mom's been in my church for probably 20 years. Uh, Occasionally, she'll just get and walk out. She claims she's going to the bathroom. what she claims to be doing because she is older, you know. Uh, I mean, she's got me as a kid. She's got to be ancient, right? Uh, I love my mom. (laughs) She tries to remember to apologize. I'm sorry I walked out on your sermon. So mom, all I care about is you come back so we'll see if she comes back. All right, way younger than my mom, by the way. It could be my daughter, they just walked in. All right, that's all the stuff you wish you hadn't said when you've been preaching? Like, ah, oh, I wish I hadn't said any of that. And we're grateful for editing if this is ever re- re- you know, captured on something. I thought it was the gal with the baby. Okay, I wanted her to stay. Hardware and software, right? Here's what you need to understand about this passage. The soul, the spirit, the conscious part of you, your software, it goes somewhere when you die. When Rachel was dying, it says her spirit left her body. That's the definition of death. You want to define death? Death is when your spirit leaves your body, when your software leaves your hardware. So here's what you need to know, which the Bible teaches from beginning to end. You are conscious and aware after you die. You, the real you, right? Because it's not your fingernails and your toenails and your kneecaps. That's not who you are right? You're meshed in that. It's part of who you are, but it's not who you are. Who you are is something else, and, and and that's going to go away, and it's going to go one of two places, and that's one of the reasons. I hope this church always stays faithful to the truth, because these are the hard truths people don't want to hear. There's no middle ground. There's two places. There's one of two places, and the Bible says it's the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. So we know that we're going to have to keep teaching about the fact that the reason we care about this church growing and thriving and planting more churches is because we want more people to join us when their spirit leaves their body to go to a place of blessing and not a place of torment. And that's what we have going on in this passage is the guy who had everything in life goes away and is suffering. Let's just keep reading as though we want to. We don't want to, but here it is. The rich man died, was buried in Hades, being in torment, lifted up his eyes, saw Abraham far off, and Lazarus at his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Does that sound like a role reversal? If I could just have a little drop of just what he has access to there, just like Lazarus was saying, if I could just have a crumb of what he has access to there. So he's now in anguish, and he's in desperation, and he's in need, and he's in want. So the comfortable guy now is in great want, and the guy who in life was in great want is now in comfort. He says, if I just had a little bit to cool this thing. But Abraham said, child, remember in your lifetime you received good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you're in anguish. Role reversal, major role reversal. And and we can go on to learn more if we had more time in verse 26 to verse 31 we get the rest of the story, but let me just deal with that snapshot and say this. What would it profit a man to gain the whole world have the best marriage ever, have the hottest wife ever, have the biggest house ever, have the best car, have, a, have it all, and then say, at the end of his life, when his software leaves his hardware, depart from me, I never knew you. You get to go now and incur the penalty of all your sins. Go. We don't want that. Into outer darkness, Jesus said, where there's weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. Jesus talked more about that place than he t- talked about our afterlife before trusting in Christ. He talked more about the reality of that. I don't want to scare anybody into the ki- I don't mind how we get them into the kingdom. The reality is that's what's at stake, heaven and hell, the reality of punishment or comfort. The reality of this particular passage, if nothing else, makes the point that you could gain everything in this life and lose in an eternity, or you could be absolutely struggling throughout your whole eternity with a struggling marriage and a struggling job and a struggling financial situation and be in bliss in eternity. And you're going to be in eternity a lot longer than you're going to be in this life. Would you agree with that? That's just simple math. And I'm not a math guy, but that adds up. I don't know. How many years you think you're going to live? How many years do you think you're going to live? 80? 90? Well, I had an aunt that lived to be 103. Great. Fantastic. How long will you be in the next reality? The Bible says your soul is going to be immortal, and you're going to get a body back Paul said that the resurrection of the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous, those who've been declared righteous and those who are not, are all going to get their bodies back. Daniel 12, it was said in the Old Testament, everyone's going to rise from the dust. Their bodies are going to be reassociated with their software, and some are going to be to glory and some to shame. There's going to be tactile, physical realities in all of eternity for all people. They're going to live in that state forever. That's what the Bible teaches. And we're here not to give our message, give God's message. That's the message he gave us. The creator says that's how it's going to work. And the point here is that it doesn't matter what goes on in this life in terms of your wealth or your comfort, how many ox or house or servants or how great your wife, It it ultimately doesn't matter. It matters about where you're headed and what you've secured for your eternity. And this is a great passage to talk about the gospel. And that's good, but I'm here to talk about marriage and family life, so I wanna say this. Number one, if you're taking notes, you need to recognize the good life, quote unquote. And the good life is really not about the here and now. It's about the then and there. Would I like for you to have a good marriage? Yes. Would I like your kids to be great? Yes. Would I like everything to work out? Fine. Yes. Would I like your skin to be clear? Sure. Would I like your hair not to fall out? That'd be nice. It Would be great to have all the things that you want? But it doesn't really matter. What matters is where you're headed. And what matters is when you're headed to the place that you know you're headed, you can have peace and contentment and the lack of coveting and envy and jealousy and strife. And as it's put in the Bible, constant friction that think godliness, I'm quoting now 1 Timothy chapter 6, that godliness is a means to great gain. And I understand that, that we think if I have great gain, that means that I'm godly. Because God is going to put his riches on me. Have you heard of the prosperity gospel? Of course you can. You're surrounded by it. If I am favored by God, I am godly. God then puts all of his blessings on me. Now, I don't want to make fun of that because it makes sense. Because if I come to your birthday party and I give you some amazing gift, here's a $2,000 laptop. Man, Pastor Mike, I hardly know him. He loves me. As opposed to reaching my pocket, pulling out some lint and a quarter, and going, happy birthday. right? You'd say, he doesn't love me. He doesn't care. He didn't even care to pick out a present for me. You'd say one expresses his favor and love, and the other one expresses his disdain, and he doesn't care. And that's why when things go bad for you, you lose your job, can't find another, you get kicked out of your house, you don't get the job you want, you don't get the promotion, you don't have all these things working out in your house, you think God must not love me. Well, here's what it says, if you know the passage I'm just quoting here from memory, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, it says godliness is a means to great gain. right? If it's accompanied with this key word, contentment. Contentment is the absence of coveting, it's the absence of envy, it's the absence of jealousy, it's me saying, you know what, it really doesn't matter. i got to turn you to this passage. When it comes to us knowing what the good life is, it's spelled out for us in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Please turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Let's start in verse 10, and if you have any endurance, we might go 10 verses through this. Let's see. Let's let's see how much you and I can tolerate here in in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Look at verse 10. It sounds like this is a theme in the Bible. Which, by the way, I didn't have you look at it, but if you were like some lizard that could put your eyes in different places, I'd have one eye on Luke 16, and I'd have one eye on Ecclesiastes 5, and I'd remind you of everything God said about the Pharisees who loved money. right? And then we'd look at this passage, and we'd see all these pieces coming together. Verse 10, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income This also is vanity. And you've read the book of Ecclesiastes, Before I Trust. That's the theme, right? If it's a song, and if you lived old enough on this planet, you know it was a song at one point, um, it would be the refrain, right? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. It's all chasing after the wind. And here's what's chasing after the wind, you loving money. That spells the opposite of Exodus chapter 20 that tells you that you're not supposed to covet. And then it says, just think about what you're chasing, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to... Now, this Hebrew translation here, this English translation from the Hebrew word, see, is the, is the Hebrew word that is strong to see. It should be bolded in Italian. It's like to gaze at them, to fix their eyes on them. And some translations put it that way. Uh, so let's look at those two things in verse 11. I, I just know that if you have more, it costs more to, uh, to maintain it. I flew in on American Airlines, in coach. Um, and I, I always think, just the way that from our house to the Orange County Airport, I always pass all the private planes. When you, it's so long, I see all the private planes. All different sizes. Some look cool, some, do, I don't even care what's, I just like, I would rather be pulling into this driveway. Right, I thought it would be great. And let's just say, and I assume you agree with that, I a a few moans and chuckles, but someone gives you a private jet, right, a, a, a Lear jet. Right or a Gulfstream, let's just say. As long as we're talking about prosperity preachers, let's just Gulfstream. Okay, <laughs> you get a Gulfstream. I'm just going to give you that. Talk about your birthday party. I come it, it isn't a laptop. It's a Gulfstream. Okay. I just wonder what percentage of the people in this room could even maintain it. You know what it costs to maintain a Gulfstream for one year? Three hundred thousand dollars just to maintain, just to keep it parked. Right. You're going to fly it. You got pilots. You got crews. You got mechanics. You got gas. It's expensive. It's hard. Right? The more goods increase, like where we're at, some people say, I got, a, I got a boat in the harbor. I'm thinking, wow, immediately, and this is just my mind, what's, it, what's the slip cost at, at Dana Point or, or Newport Beach? like, know, what does it cost? The barnacles have to get scraped off. Just... And you know what? I don't, want a, I don't want a boat in the harbor. I wouldn't mind if you took me out on your boat every now and then, but I don't want a boat in the harbor. <laughs> I can't afford it. When goods increase, so do those who consume them. And all I'm saying is you could want more. I've been to some great places and seen some people's houses and their stuff and they have great, you know, RVs and all these things. It's like, oh, it's awesome, right? And, 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 and I'm thinking to myself, you just, once you, and you, some of you know this, the more goods increase though, it, it costs more to have more, right? In every way. And then not only that, you gotta seize your eyes on them. You got to see, I, and again, this is just my mind, perhaps, and a son of a cop. I can't, every time I see something nice, I go, okay, well, what are they going to keep people from stealing that? What kind of alarm system you have on that, right? Where do you keep that park? What are you going to do with that? We can't even plant churches, by the We're planting a new church in North Dallas. In North Dallas, just North, 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 Dallas, up where the toll road ends. And we're about to launch that in, in, in uh, August. <laughs> Real conversations, right? We we, we need a trailer, because unlike you, they're not blessed with this building where they can throw all their stuff and lock it up. Oh, even this place got broken into. You know that, right? Does everyone know that? Somebody cut a hole in the wall, and I don't know if this is a secret, but Pastor Hayden stepped out, so I'm going to tell you all the secrets. (laughs) And I get a call, right? Not that I'm responsible. They want to keep me in the know. And and, and a hole was cut in the wall, and they crawled in and started stealing all the stuff from this building. Now, by God's grace, and Evans, Pastor Evans told me this story. It's amazing how God has just protected this church, and we got a lot of it back. But you can't even get a building, let alone a trailer. The discussions about our trailers in North Dallas, it's like, where are we going to park them? They've got to be safe, and we've got to figure out the security. We can't even get a trailer, right, if we're going to put our chairs in them or if we're going to put our audio equipment in them. And it's not, like, it's not rock concert audio equipment. It's just audio equipment to make a sermon get heard, and, and we've got to make sure someone doesn't steal it. Right, and be great, like in our church, we you say, cameras everywhere, cameras. Why? Because we've got to fix our eyes on these things. You can't have more without more stuff that you've got to now pay for and more stuff that you have to focus on, and you've got to keep it. That's what I think this word here, to see, to, to get your gaze on them. Here's the deal. When you don't have much, verse 12, you're just working all day, working minimum wage. Sweet is the sleep, verse 12, of the laborer. Whether he eats little or much, man, he's just tired. He's been working all day. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's a lot going on in the rich man with his purple outfits and his jackets and his little, you know, deals going on. I don't even know what they're called. And underwear that's so comfortable, his linen garments. I'm just telling you, he's stuffing his, feasting sumptuously every day. And the older I get, the harder is that to do. I can't even go to the Italian place anymore after, after six, right? Don't get me started. I don't, yeah. yeah. And, and, and when my wife and I were you know, eating the, the mac and cheese, we didn't have this problem. I'm just telling you. Ramen, top ramen, they still make that stuff? Yeah. Lived on that in college. <laughs> Grievous evil, I have seen, verse 13, under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his own hurt, and those riches that were lost by a bad venture. And he is his father of a son, and he has nothing in his hand, right? He has no inheritance, because I mean, why? Because sometimes the things turn quickly. And matter of fact, for him, as he came from his mother's womb, so shall he go again. That's what First Timothy six says. Naked he came, and he shall take nothing for the toil that he may carry away in his hand. You've heard the old Jay Vernon McGee line: "There's no U-Haul behind the hearse, right? Even if you throw it in the in the pyramid in Egypt, what are you going to do with it? You know." Nothing. You can't take anything with you. This is a grievous evil, verse 16. Just as he came, so he goes. What gain then is there to him who toils for the wind? Because it's not going to last. Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness with much vexation and sickness and anger. And some of the most stressed out people I know are people that have a lot of stuff. By the way, every time I read this passage, I think about people who here, and I can illustrate it with all these people I know that, you know, at the top of their game, they're like a starting pitcher for the angels and they have all the hot rods and they had all the girls and they had all the houses and they give their testimony at a men's breakfast and say, you know what? Uh, it was all for nothing, man. It didn't satisfy. And half the guys in the room are saying, well, let me try. You know, <laughs> it's going to work for me probably because who's writing this? Solomon, who's dressed in purple? Solomon, who has all the food? Solomon, who's got all the girls in all the houses? Solomon, and he's, like, he's saying all this thing, I've seen so many rich people, it just does not satisfy. It's hard, I know, but the whole point of the book of Ecclesiastes is, it, really, it is chasing after the wind. In the end, what he says in chapter 12 of the book, when it gets to the bottom line, this is about eternity, without God who's gonna bring every deed into judgment, it's about you facing eternity. You better start thinking about that. Because what matters is where you're gonna be after this life is over. What's the good life? Making sure you're right with God. As a matter of fact, let's look at the good life. Did I read that rest of that paragraph? Uh, Moreover, yeah, I got all that. Verse 18 Behold, what have I seen to be good? And fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil which, which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. Now, underline this, for this is his lot, including his wife, right? Including his kids, including his house, his neighborhood, and his diseases, and his allergies, and his eczema, or whatever he's got. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy him and to accept his lot, his lot, and to rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God, the lack of covetousness, right? It's called contentment in the Bible. This is a gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life and how bad it was begging at the gate of the rich man and being sick and no medicine and dogs licking his sores. God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Now, we don't learn anything really about Lazarus and the kind of life that he has. But in the story, the whole point is that's not what matters, And all I'm saying is what can matter is whether or not you've accepted your lot in life. And you've got to say that's contentment. Does Paul ever get to that point in Philippians chapter 4? Oh, I think he does. I've learned the secret of contentment. I know it is to have much. I know it is to have little. I get it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Ever heard that verse? Yeah, all the football players wear the reference on their, you know, top of their cheeks. Right? It's the theme in someone's, you know, theme verse in someone's yearbook they don't understand the verse, right? Please don't let your seniors put that as their theme verse in their yearbook unless they understand what it means. And that is whether I get the job, whether I get rejected from college or my SATs tanked or whether they were good. Here's the deal. What matters is I've learned the secret of contentment. It's about my relationship with Christ, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do whatever God has me to do in my lot. I can find enjoyment in the position God has given me. And it's not his house. It's not his wife. It's not his oxen. It's not his servants. It's not his donkey. It's none of that. It's this stuff. You've got to learn to enjoy what you have. That's the good life. It's not saying I've got to have something different. No, but my stuff's a lot of trouble. I get it. I understand it. Is it better if you have a choice between something, good health and bad health? I'll choose good health, right? If it's a good meal or a cheap meal, I'd rather have the good meal. I understand all that. I'm not saying that we shouldn't, if given the choice, say, yeah, it would be better to have the better thing, but that's not what matters. As a matter of fact, when it comes down to it, you'll see in our passage, back to Luke chapter 16, verse 19, I think you'll understand what matters is something that is going to change our relationship with our stuff. Verse 19, again, rich man, clothed in purple, fine linen, feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate was a poor man named Lazarus. Lazarus. Uh, very, very common name. Common name in Jewish households in Hellenized cultures, they called him Lazarus. It is a... Hellenized form of the Hebrew word Eleazar. Now that starts to make sense. Like Jesus' name is the Hellenized form of the Old Testament Hebrew name what, Sunday school grads? Joshua, right? Yeshua. Matter of fact, you hear people like the, you know, Messianic, call him Yeshua. Yeshua, that's his name, Yeshua. In Hebrew, Yeshua. Well, we would say in English, that's Joshua, Yeshua. And in Greek, though, it was Jesus. Eleazar, now that is a biblical name, Eleazar the priest. And Lazarus is the Hebrew or Hellenized form, the Greek form of it. It's the Greek form of the Hebrew word Eleazar. Anytime you see a name or a city uh, that, like Bethel, have you heard the name Bethel, the city Bethel? Beth or bet is is the Hebrew word house. El is a shortened version of Elohim. Elohim is the word God. So whenever you see E-L, it's usually a short abbreviation for the word God, and whatever the commensurate part, the the corollary to that, next to that, well, then you made a sentence like Bethel is house of God. Well, Eleazar, Eleazar is the word uh, to help, like my help. God, Elohim, is my help. So the difference between eternity in blessing and punishment versus punishment is whether or not we have this perspective. I think that's why Jesus gives this guy a name, whether it's historical or not, that's not a deal breaker. We can all go to lunch. But the point is, I think the, 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 the key to his eternity is there. He sees God as his help for whatever meal he's going to get. He lived a, a while, I'm assuming. He used to always lay there at the gate. He's made it for several months, several years. God has sustained him. But what's he looking to? God is my help. By the way, that's what we look to for eternity to not be cast into a place where we pay for our sins. Because if you ask your neighbor, hey, are you going to heaven? They're going to say, hope so. And then you ask them, well, why do you think you would? And they say, because I am a good person. At least I'm better than the next guy, better than the guy I'm reading about on my news feed right now. Okay, I get that. They think that and they hope that because they're hoping in themselves. I am my help. Me, Azar. How about that? There's a a conflation. Me, Azar. Not Eliezer. It's not that God is my help. I'm my own help. I'm hoping he's going to look at my resume and say, that guy's better than that guy. You're you're in with me. But the Bible says God needs to be my help. God has to provide his own salvation with his own arm. That's how Isaiah says it repeatedly. My own arm will provide salvation. You need help. You can't do it. You fall short. I'm going to send my own son to be. solution for you. Christ is going to live the human life you should have lived, right? Then he's going to climb up on a cross, be nailed to it by the Romans, so that he can absorb the penalty that you are supposed to be be recipient of. And then, right, you're going to say, how do I know I'm going to heaven? I'm not guessing. I'm not hoping, not crossing my fingers. Are you going to heaven? You're like, yes, absolutely. I know that I am. Well, how? Because God is my help, and God has sent his son, and specifically, he's the focal point of our trust, We're trusting in Christ to make us right with our God. And therefore, I know where I'm going. Number two on your outline, you and I need to learn to trust God more. Trust God more. You need to trust God more, not just when it comes to eternity, but once we settle that, and that's critical, and I hope you're there. And if you're not, today's the day for you. Put your trust in Christ. Stop fighting Christ. Say you're a sinner. You fall short. Accept it. No excuses. Put your trust in the finished work of Christ, and you become a brother in Christ. Now, can you start trusting him for everything else? that you don't have your desires met, that you don't have all that you want, that you don't have the job you want, the wife you want, you don't have the stuff you want. Can you trust him to accept your lot and find enjoyment with what you do have? That's the gift of God. And that's what I want for you. And I want that for you when you realize that this is a God thing and not a you thing. Ultimately, it comes down to what God is going to provide. And you need to trust him, a transfer of your trust. As though I had time for this. Go to Matthew chapter six real quick. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, if you get to verse 25, and you, if you're reading from an ESV, whether you're electronically on your phone or your laptop or whatever, or you're looking at a printed version, it'll have a heading over it. And, and if you look above, Matthew 6, verse 25, what are the words there? Do not what? Do not be anxious. That's put there because it's, you know, the editors like to, you know, the translators like to say, well, here we're going start in a new section. What's the first word? Of of that verse? Therefore. Therefore. Now, you've been to Sunday school, I hope, long enough to know. If you see a therefore, you ought got to be looking back at the predicate. What is it therefore based on what? Well, look at the verse ahead of it. Can you look at verse 24? No one can serve two masters, for either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Okay, that's the same thing, by the way, that he says to the Pharisees there in Luke chapter 16. Therefore right? Instead of me loving money and saying, I just wish I had more. I got to have more. I got to have better this, better that. I'm not going to be stressed about that, which by the way, that's the word anxiety to have my mind stressed out and stretched. My mind, merizomai, it comes from the Greek word to cut or to divide. My mind is always divided. I'm always like, oh, what about this? I got this. I got that. I got this. He says, start to get your mind together, calm down and focus. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, about your body, what you're going to put on. Now think back to all that we saw about the rich man. Yeah, he had all that. The guy at the gate, he could be worried about that. Let's hope Eleazar sees God as his help, and he thinks this way. My life's more than food, and my my body's more than clothing. I can look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, they don't reap, they don't gather into barns. But I know this, God feeds them. Your heavenly father, not just God, not just the distant God, not just some ethereal person that started the universe. Your heavenly father feeds the stinking birds. He's feeding the birds. I mean, some way in his providence, he gets some food into their beaks and they eat. Are you not more value than they? Are you not more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, a single hour of his life, I'm sorry, can, can be, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Try it. It doesn't work. So then why are you anxious? Why are you anxious about clothes? Look at the fields, the lilies, better than Solomon's clothes. Oh, you have little faith, bottom verse 30, and don't be anxious they're going to say, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? The Gentiles seek after all those, this is the word we get the word zealous from. Uh, transliterated in, from Greek, the idea of seek to, to, to be zealous about. It. I'm zealous. They want this stuff. They take pictures of it and put it on their refrigerators, right? Remember that old, it's still coming back. I've plenty of people, to put your wish, your dream board up. They, they chase after this stuff. Don't be anxious about that. Don't be anxious about any of it. Don't chase after. It. The Gentiles are chasing after it. Your heavenly father knows you need the basics of life, but seek first. You want to know something to be zealous about? Be zealous about the kingdom. Put that at the top of the list. Have your mind unified on that. The kingdom of God and his righteousness. The kingdom of God, when does that start? Well, I guess in a way it started when I became a Christian because I'm enthroning Christ as king in my heart. Yes, you have. You have a foretaste of the kingdom. But every day we're supposed to pray, Matthew chapter 6, that your kingdom would come. That's how the chapter started. I want your kingdom to come. So it's future. I want to seek first this future kingdom. That's hard to do. But I'm investing in the next place, the next reality. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all the things you're worried about to be added to you it may not be much. But until his death, Lazarus had all that he needed, even though it wasn't much, even though you wouldn't want to be there. You didn't envy any of his stuff. I get that. You envied the rich guy's stuff. You shouldn't envy the rich guy's stuff because in the end, none of that mattered. The good life was something secured by someone who trusts in God. God's going to take care of all this. Don't be anxious about tomorrow, Verse 34. Tomorrow's gonna be anxious for itself. It's just an interesting play on words. I preached just on that one verse. Some great stuff there, I don't have time for it. But sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Yeah, you gotta get lunch, figure that out. Don't be stressed, just get what you can. You gotta play, have a place, sleep night. Hopefully you have something, you have some kind of apartment, you, you can sleep, great. You got a big house, doesn't matter. Trust God enough to let tomorrow not disrupt today. That's the real challenge. You gotta trust God enough to never let tomorrow and my concerns about it, disrupt the enjoyment of what I have today. God has given you what he's given you. It's a gift of God, and it comes through trust, that I can find contentment in that. Back to our text real quick, just to end with this one concept, this one thought. The guy clearly who had all the stuff, verse 19, clothed in purple, linen, feasted every day, did ne- he never helped the guy at the gate, and he wasn't a guy sitting there coming out with a board that's saying, you know, I want your hand out in the parking lot of some store while he, you know, sneaks around the corner to jump in his, you know, his pickup truck. It's not a guy that's lazy and doesn't want to work. Matter of fact, we're told in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians that we are supposed to not aid them in that cause. I know that may be controversial among you, but we are not supposed to let them eat. We're not supposed to be a party to their laziness, their idleness, as Paul said, their busy-bodiness. It's about someone who is not able. And in the reality here, here's a guy at your gate that is not able. You have everything you could supply for him. You could just dump that in his lap. Could you not? You could. You could give him the scraps. You could at least give him something to eat. You could give him some spare clothes. You could take care of this need. But he didn't. And the difference here that we see in this text between someone who ends up in a place of punishment and the guy trusting in the Lord is the guy who is ending up in punishment was not generous with his, with his stuff. He was apparently like the Pharisees who loved money and they loved all the things that came with that. They loved it more than they loved, in this case, their fellow man who had a need that he couldn't meet. The difference between saving faith and, and people that just think they're going to heaven is found in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 21. Here's this picture of someone who has a testimony of faith, but it's not a faith that can save him. Because when it comes to someone in need, they see that need. It's a real need, not a perceived need, not a con man, a real need, and they say, oh, be warmed and be filled. They just, I'll pray for you. Right? As it's put in 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, they close their heart toward the person. They are not generous. I mean, you want to put it in a word, that's the problem. People going to hell, in this passage at least, are people that are not generous, as opposed to someone who sees God as their help. If the rich man could see God as his help, guess what he would be? Generous. He'd be generous. And he wouldn't say, well, if I give this away, I won't have something for tomorrow. We already know the remedy is not to worry about tomorrow. Does that mean no savings account, no insurance, no 401k? No, no, no. Those things are fine. I don't put my trust in those, but it really came down to whether or not I'm going to secure my future or really meet a need that's right in front of me. I'm going to meet the need in front of me. That's what the Bible says. How can you say the love of God exists in you if you close your heart to them? You have material goods you could help and you don't. And I just really want to ask you, and it was brought up multiple times and really not by design. This was supposed to be a whole conference this weekend about the family. But oftentimes, your loyalties are expressed by your expenditures. And I'm just saying, it's time for you to look at your heart and say, what kind of faith do I have? And the disparity sometimes in our lives of hoarding really shows that I don't trust in God. i got to hoard more. i got to save it up. Number three in your outline, i just end with this. Cultivate faith to help. I want to trust God enough to where I say, I can help others around me. I can help the church. I can help missions. I can help things go forward that are expanding the righteousness of the kingdom of God as opposed to hoarding more stuff. Cultivate that kind of faith. Be generous to God. As it says in Proverbs 3, 9, and 10, honor the Lord with your wealth. Then he says, I'll take care of the other stuff. You'll have, the the, the silos will be overflowing. You just worry about honoring the Lord because you trust him because he's your help. A lot of us in Orange County, we just desperately love the stuff that he's doing through us. And a lot of people ask, what's in it for you? All that's in it for us is the gratification as we pay it forward, right, that the kingdom is expanding, that people are getting saved. So please continue to do the good work here of seeing this community reach for Christ. Get yourself so financially secure as a church because you have a generous congregation that you can start putting money aside to plant other churches, pay it forward to the next church you plant. Do what's happening through our church, and I can just tell you it's a great place to be, to be blessed by God, to say, we're going to keep setting aside resources to plant more. Just stay at that, because what we really care about, right, not being a mega church, not making a name for ourselves, it's just seeing people's names get written in the Lamb's Book of Life, because that's what matters, because a thousand years from now, that's all that's going to matter. So let's do that. Is it next week you got your baptisms here, next weekend? You can be disputing all kinds of things, particularly when it's a young church, and I can just say this having pastored for 35 years, young church, that all these people that can be critical that the church isn't exactly what they want. Ah! Can, can you stop if that's your temptation? Okay? I'm not saying you should follow the church to end into any kind of big heresies, right? Church doing the best it can to stay absolutely faithful to Scripture. But can you get on board with a church where God is allowing them to hit the target of seeing people Not go to a place of torment? I want to get on board with that church. Be where the action is. and The action's in a place that cares about reaching its community for Christ and building up those disciples to be faithful followers of Christ. The good place to be. Not perfect, I get it. You find the perfect church, you've heard the old adage, don't join it because you'll ruin it, right? (laughs) So you found an imperfect one. But I'll tell you this, it's a good one. And I pray that you commit yourself to it until I see you again. I really commend you to the grace of God to be a generous, loving church who puts its trust and faith in God that you can be called Eleazar. God is my help. Let's pray. God, help us as Christians to show that we trust you in everything that we do with our time, our effort, our resources, our talents, to be the kinds of Christians that hold out the word of life to those around us, even when it's hard, even when people reject it, even when people hate us because of it. God, we don't want to make... uh, enemies. We're not trying to enjoy the backlash, but but we're willing to stand with you, the Christ who was crucified by the mob. We're willing to be people that take the insult, that are willing to go through trouble or be excluded, as you say to us, that we will be if we follow you for the name of Christ. I pray that we would do that with love and joy and resilience and forgiveness, that we'd move forward into seeing this church become vibrant and self-supporting, And not just self-supporting financially, but God, let them be able to plant other churches. Let them grow into areas of ministry and seeing people saved and the youth programs in every level of this church that you might be honored, that we all are prepared for the time when we're going to slough off this mortal coil, as Shakespeare said. We're going to be done with this life. We're going to step into the presence of our creator And hear from you, I trust, I hope, I pray. It won't be for all of us, but I pray it'll be for most of us here. If not, God, I just pray ambitiously for all genuine Christians here. Well done, good and faithful servant. Let us hear that from you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.